I'm Nikki Kristoff, and welcome to Teched Up. Today, I'm joined in the studio by Camille Francois, a disinformation researcher. By the end of this episode, you will know what a troll farm is, how they operate, and the difference between a bot and a hyperactive political supporter. We also talk about how people sometimes unintentionally end up in harassment campaigns. It turns out that unless they're a bot, trolls are human too. Today in the studio, we have Camille Francois visiting. She is a professor. She has studied misinformation, disinformation, online harassment, and is joining us in Washington, D.C. Last week when I texted you and asked you if you could come on, you were in Paris at the Presidential Palace, (laughs) having a meeting with President Macron, and now you're on Teched Up. Welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. So I want to talk today about... You've done a lot of work on election misinformation and disinformation, and people have heard a lot about it. But I think people don't understand trolls, troll farms, bots, how these campaigns get started, how people end up working in them. And so that's what I'd like to discuss today. But let's start with your first work in harassment. How did you get into this field? Yeah. Um I think I stumbled upon the topic, if I'm going to be honest. Um, I had always been working on cybersecurity issues and specifically how governments use digital means to censor, to harass, and to silence. Back in the days, I was working at Google, and I was um, working with activists and journalists thinking about the ways in which they were currently being silenced and targeted by specifically their governments, right? And so they were talking about being, you know, being hacked and being fished. And very quickly, that question of the trolls emerged. And they were saying, we now know how to protect ourselves against phishing, right? We have a better sense of how to do cybersecurity. We feel a little bit better about... um, not being hacked. We have some notion of making sure our privacy gets respected, but we want to talk about the trolls and the, you know, the fake accounts that are targeting us on the internet. They're they're trying to silence us, they are creating harassment campaigns, and we think those accounts are fake and we think that governments are behind these accounts. So you once told me that your work was inspired by, and you just said this, but I'm going to repeat it, (laughs) that it was inspired by activists and people speaking out online who felt like once they became the target of attention, it felt like, I think you used the words, the internet was crashing down around them. Yeah. And so your research was to show them this isn't however many thousands of people, these are fake accounts, like to help them see that this feels like the internet is crashing down around you, but actually it's is coordinated. Am I getting that right? Yeah, and it's so important. I remember some of the interviews we did with specifically women journalists in Turkey. And I was sitting and she was showing me all the all the fake accounts and all the messages. And frankly, there were sexual threats, right? And so she was really thinking like, does do, it, do that many people actually have these feelings of, of violence towards me? Is this am I really facing a threat of millions of people on the internet? You know, like going after me in this way, and being able to see like, hey, actually, those are not only just fake accounts, but they're all coordinated by just a handful of entities 
does provide very important context saying like it is not the case that thousands and thousands of people you know like think of you in this way really what it is is a coordinated campaign that's strategically deployed against you to silence you to threaten you and and you know for you to live in fear that can help a lot and then comes the question of can we attribute it right that's a question that we talk about a lot in cyber when there's a cyber attack we don't just say oh that's a cyber attack right people want to know okay all right but who's behind it right and building these methods to do attribution for this campaign was also really important right like when i tell you hey you're being attacked by a troll farm online it's legitimate for you to say well, I would like to know who's behind it now, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> who's running the troll farm? Exactly. So one thing, I don't think people know, I'm putting myself in this category too. <laughs> I get the gist of what a troll farm is. It's internet trolls working together to do you know, up to nefarious things. But I don't really understand what a troll farm is and how they operate. Are they humans? Are they bots? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is not easy, actually. It doesn't really mean uh, something specific. I think it's a term that we, uh, you know, started using really after 2016. Um, the original troll farm that people think about is the Internet Research Agency. It's that troll farm based in St. Petersburg, who was responsible for a large part of the Russian disinformation campaign that targeted the 2016 election. Now, if you look at the IRA, um, you know, who are they and what is it structured? We know that now because they've been indicted. So we have a lot of legal documents. And essentially, they are sort of closer to a marketing shop, really, than 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 to an intelligence agency, oh, right? Okay. So if you look at, for instance, the teams they have, they will have a graphic design department. They will have a SEO department. And of course, they work to achieve a geopolitical ambition, right? But if you think about it, again, if you close your eyes and you try to imagine it, you're closer to the world of like a little marketing shop than to the world of James Bond, really. So that is fascinating. So <laughs> SEO for people, so search engine optimization. So what you're saying is they have graphic designers and people in-house marketing the message they want to get out, making sure it's rising to the top of search results or rising in these social media platforms. That's true. And the other things that they would do that's very familiar to us is they would do A-B testing, right? So they would sit and they would say, today we have to get out this very nasty message uh, on Hillary Clinton. Please use your fake accounts and the fake groups that we have. And then they iterate. And then at the end of the day, they, you know, they, they regroup and they're like, oh, well, that really didn't work. That was a very bad joke and nobody liked it. But whoever wrote this post, it's actually pretty good. Let's double down in this direction and let's continue engaging our audience, right? They're doing audience building. When you have a fake account, when you do like a fake profile, the first thing you want is for your fake account to find its audience. And so it's almost like a little TV show, right? So you have this fake identity and you have to think about what are they going to say today to be engaging? One of my favorite trolls from that era is Jenna Abrams. Uh, she was evidently like a fake person, right? Okay. And she was written by the Internet Research Agency by in the St. Russians. Petersburg by the Russians. Her bio said she was from Main Street, USA, okay. and she was supposed <laughs> to be like a mid-30s woman, conservative, but with a really good sense of humor. I think you would have loved her. It's just really fun Live, on the Live, laugh, love. Exactly. But actually with a good sense of humor, and she would do a lot of pop culture jokes. And so, for instance, they would think about, okay, what do we need to reach Americans? And they would come up with a great joke on like Kim Kardashian. 
And then they would say, okay, now we inject the bad political content. And so it is a content strategy of designing the type of content that's going to reach the audience that you want so that then you can, I don't particularly like this term, but I think it's clear, you can then weaponize it, mm -hmm. right? So a couple things. First of all, I've heard you say before you don't like using words of war when we're not at war. Yes. I think that's kind of part of the problem that we're dealing with is we want to talk about cyber war all the time. We have a harder time defining what cyber peace is, right? Like what what does it look like to actually live in these conditions of peace with this technology? What are the rules that we want to be respecting? And I, I do push back uh, in my daily life on people wanting to use war terminology all the time. We do a lot of this in cyber. So when we did the 2020 election, um, Everybody had a war room, mm -hmm. but with the Graphica team, we had the peace <laughs> room. And it was kind of like, you know, like a like satellite thing, right? Like, hey, war room number five, this is peace room number one. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, we were, we were pretty big on that. And so the idea that part of, I mean, I think it's, so we are guilty, we, the podcast, which is just me in the studio, <laughs> um, guilty of having the last two episodes are on cyber attacks, cyber war. And I think that it's helpful to think through the work you're doing, which is saying, okay, Jenna Ab Abrams, mm -hmm. Jenna Abrams is a fake influencer. Yes. Created by essentially a government-run marketing department. That's right. That's studying our social media habits, our pop culture interests, and then being funny and engaging and finding friends and then injecting like poisonous. It's exactly that. Okay, it's exactly and that. And she was a fairly successful influencer. Like okay. not all campaigns were successful. And I think that's really important to keep in mind that a lot of these disinformation campaigns end up going nowhere. Nobody follows them. But in that specific case, Jenna was a really successful fake influencer. Um, and she is cited in pop culture articles that still that still are up today, right? Because again, once in a while, she would make a really good joke and people would just want to cite her in, in a piece. It's unbelievable. Okay, so <laughs> how do they, how do, this is one of the things I realized when I was, sorry, this is a siren, welcome to Washington, D.C. We'll keep it in. Um, <laughs> I live in New York, so I'm used to that. It's very New York soundscape. Uh, one of the things that I thought was fascinating after the election is looking at memes mm -hmm. and this sort of sophistication, like almost more sophisticated, well, certainly more than I am. I don't even understand all the memes happening. How do they, how do people working in these troll farms learn what works for us? I mean, you just study, right? I, I, I don't mean this in a mean way, but we're not really hard to crack. <laughs> you know, if you look at what people click on, uh, yeah, you really, you know, you quickly get the sense of, oh, yeah, they like this, they don't like that. This is a type of joke that works. This is a type of joke that don't work. Um, what gets often complicated is, you know, we have this idea that trolls, they do very sophisticated messages and the messages is very dangerous and it's also always fake. But most of the time, you just have people who want to build an audience and so they borrow the popular memes. Sometimes they adapt it a bit, sometimes they just repost it. And so a lot of the content of these troll farms and or disinformation actors tend to be very, you know, benign and very mundane. It's just a meme of the day type thing. So meme of the day, and then they'll inject something that sort of rends us apart. I, I don't know if I'm using the word rends, right? But like rips us apart exactly. because it's either race baiting or it's highly partisan or it's... That's right. So that was very 2016. Okay. Right? Um, but... You know, as I said, prior to 2016, nobody really thought about this in Silicon Valley. This was not very top of mind. And that really changes radically in 2017. 
in 2017, everybody realizes like, wow, we, we had a blind spot on the 12 farm thing. We had a blind spot on information operations. And then you see uh, both, you know, the government and, and national security apparatus in DC and, and Silicon Valley put together teams to detect these types of operations, come up with definitions, come up with methods. And so in 2017 onwards, start what what are really for me my favorite years in the mm-hmm. in the sort of disinformation cat and mouse because we get better at catching this type of activity and then they have to adapt uh, and then get better at evading the measures we put in place. That means that the Russian disinformation campaign targeting the election looks very different in 2016, 2017, 2018, that's the midterms, and of course, 2020. And so when I think of the operations that were hardest to detect in 2020, I think, for instance, of those two operations that Russia did, one targeting the left side of the political spectrum in the US and the other one targeting the far right side of the political spectrum in the US, where this time they didn't create a fake influencer. They created a fake newspaper on both sides. Ah. And then they hired real freelancers, real American journalists who did not know they were working for a fake newspaper run by Russia. And that is much more complicated, of course, both to detect and to expose. And that leads to also having very bizarre conversations with the freelancers saying like, hey, guys, you know, we got to tell you something about that article that you wrote for this website, right? The website on the left was called Peace Data. The left, the website on the right was called NAEBC. Um, and it's it's a very different sort of strategy of entrapment. And it's one that this, this time really targets real people who become unwitting agents of Russian influence. OK, I never heard of this until right this moment. <laughs> so th- this is why we're doing this podcast. So you're right. I'm very familiar with the 2016 blind spot. Everybody is. I know that you worked at Graphica, which is one of the two, I think, organizations that were able to see the data set of what happened These experts and researchers, you being one of them, and working across platforms got together to create sort of an apparatus to deal with that. And then what I just heard you say is the Russians created fake newspapers and hired real freelancers to write misinformation. Can I ask you another clarifying question before we get to that? What is the difference between misinformation and disinformation? Is there a difference in disinformation? So it's a very theoretical difference. And I will tell it to you, but then we can talk about like how much of this matters. Okay. But theoretically... Misinformation is when information that is not true goes viral. And so, for instance, if um, my uncle goes on the internet and says, I am worried that if I get the vaccine, I'm going to start radiating 5G. He that's actually, my actual uncle. Yeah, I mean, that's also mine. Right? <laughs> so, like, that's, just, that's the uncle problem. And they actually generally believe that, right? Like, blows my mind, but they do generally believe that, and it's it's evidently fake. But misinformation is that, right? It's the propagation of information that's fake and that's viral. That's a big problem on health. It can also be a real problem on, you know, election-related misinformation can be really bad if people really think that, um, you know, I don't know, voting machines are not secure or whatnot. That's different from disinformation, because in disinformation, you have viral fake information, but it's propagated by people who have an intent to deceive, Mm. right? So it's people who know that what they're saying is fake. So if I tell you, hey, 
Um, why don't you go and vote by SMS? This is a great idea and it's totally right. going to work. Here, I know that what I'm saying isn't true. This is a campaign to deceive you with a strategic objective, and that's disinformation. So the real the real difference is really the motive of the person who is sharing the information. I see. Which is why it can get very theoretical, because how the hell are you going to know whether something that's fake has been propagated by someone who's there trying to deceive you or whether it's your uncle again who really should get off Facebook? Well, or it could be, I mean, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but it seems like you could have a deceptive actor, in, you know, putting disinformation into the ecosystem, the bloodstream of the social media platforms. And then it becomes misinformation when someone believes it and regular people who actually believe it to be true. Is that right? Yeah, no? exactly right. Also, you would be a great troll because this is exactly what the game <laughs> is about, right? So the game is about trying to a, find yes. online communities who is going to carry the waters for you, right? Like you want to pass the baton to people who are going to go and carry this operation forward. That's also why there's this bizarre, awkward relationship with conspiracy communities online and information operations, right? So people ask, what is the relationship between QAnon and the Russians? The actual answer to that question is there is no relationship, right? Like mm -hmm. QAnon is a problem that we have online. The Russian is a different other type of problem that we have online. That being said, often disinformation actors will target these communities because if you manage to sort of like plant your seed there, it's going to grow. It's very fertile ground for disinformation. We talk about the Russians a lot, but the Iranians are really good at this too, right? In their campaign targeting the 2020 election, they actually impersonated the Proud Boys, right? Mm -hmm. Far-right group in the U.S. And they were like, yes, there is a fertile terrain there. It's definitely going to freak people out. It's going to work well. It didn't work that well, but it's really interesting, right? Like those right. actors are looking at the um, ways in which our own political debate is fractured. They're looking at the ways in which we're polarized. They're looking at um, our own weaknesses and vulnerabilities in these online conversations to better exploit them. So it's like Inception. I just watched the movie Inception two days yeah. ago. So it's basically planting an idea. And then if it grows organically among these communities, that's easier than having troll farms where you're building and building over time fake accounts. It's easier not only because now we're getting better at detecting the fake accounts, right? Mm -hmm. And so the reason why the Russian campaign and Jenna, our friend Jenna, right, mm -hmm. fake friend, the reason why they were effective is the Russians started doing that focused on the U.S. in St. Petersburg in 2014. And so by the time we detect them, we're in 2017. And so those accounts have been online for three years, making, you know, bad pop culture jokes. And so it takes a long time to grow that audience. And if we get much better at detecting those accounts early, they don't really have time to build that audience, which is also why we see actors moving to other strategies mm -hmm. like entrapping journalists and freelancers in working for fake journalists, you know, fake, for fake uh, newspapers for them. So there are two things I want to cover off uh, before we close out our conversation. And also, I've learned a bunch. This is like the whole reason <laughs> we're having this podcast. I had no idea there were fake newspapers. And um, that's unbelievable. But two things. One, I want to talk about um, these unwitting actors. So you look at troll farms and you... I don't know how many people walking around have talked to people who op who worked in a troll farm, but you have. And so I'd love to hear that. And then the last thing, you're a professor, and I want to talk briefly about your class and what you're teaching right now. It <laughs> sounds good. Um, yeah, I've I've had the opportunity and you know to, to talk to a few people on the on the other side of these disinformation campaigns. We can call them trolls, we can call them disinformation operators, and 
um, I've I've really seen many different stories. I think this is what stays with me the most is the diversity of trajectories of how you end up doing this. Um, some people are actually pretty proud of their work, right? So um, I've talked to a guy who used to run a troll farm in Macedonia. He's so proud of this. When you meet him, he gives you his business card and his business card says, I'm the man who inadvertently got Donald Trump elected. He says he's very sorry about this. He doesn't really look sorry about this. So that's sort <laughs> of like one way, right? Um, You've I've, met this guy? Yes. Okay. He's again, like he's very happy to talk about this. He's not very undercover. Okay, uh, but I've also met people with a very different trajectory who kind of stumbled upon this. Some of the stories that stay with me are notably from India, with people who said. Um, I initially joined a political campaign to do social media and then my candidate got elected and suddenly I kind of wake up a few months down the line and I realize, wow, I'm I'm running a fake account, harassing journalists uh, on the internet. I am a troll, right? So mm-hmm. there's also this, this trajectory of sort of inadvertently, you know, starting with something, maybe it's political marketing, maybe, you know, maybe it's campaigning and it's down the line you realize that, no, now you're, you're essentially a troll farm. And then they are, um, you know, people who actually just uh, got hired as trolls. It paid well. They spoke English well. Um, and uh, and uh, eventually down the line, they're like, actually, that's not really what I want to do. And I do think it's weird. It's not rewarding. It's not rewarding. And of course, um, it's a bit of a different story, but I think it's one that's really important to tell because we often forget about it. One of the main reasons why we know about these troll farms is because of really fantastic journalists who often go undercover and expose what's going on there, right? So the reason why we know about the Internet Research Agency in Petersburg is because of a young woman journalist who went undercover, documented everything, and with great personal risk, exposed what was going on. So again, there's a lot of different things that can happen around, around troll farms and there's different ways to end up there. And it's a fascinating story, just the human experience. I mean, I can't imagine being a freelance journalist reporting and then finding out that you're part of an apparatus to so discord. Yeah. Uh, some people have reacted really well to this. And so, you know, thinking back again in 2020, some of the journalists uh, said, all right, this is I totally understand how I got trapped. And this is all my communications with the trolls. This is, you know, cooperate and hand it over. Yeah, exactly. And sharing with the media, kind of debriefing others. I think that's really important because it helps people not get entrapped. Right. When when we have journalists that are brave enough to say, like, yes, it happened to me. And this is everything. This is everything about how it went down so that others could be, you know, may perhaps, you know, more aware of these types of threats if this ever happens to them or if if they ever get targeted because it's targeting right so like they actually go and find specific journalists that they think their articles is going to work for their uh geostrategic purposes and then you have journalists and and freelancers who don't react like this right Mm -hmm. like some of the people we contacted particularly on the far right side of the operations said oh no i don't believe in any of this also i don't believe in russian trolling you're like all right. You are a Russian <laughs> troll. You are a Russian troll. Well, I mean, you have been in, you know, you've been entrapped in an operation yeah. that targets the U.S. And yeah, it's it's complicated. It is complicated. So this is sort of the na- <laughs> I mean, I guess what we're concluding is unless they're a bot, trolls are human, too. Trolls are absolutely human, too. And they're as diverse in their trajectories as, as we are. Bots is a different story. A bot is uh, a programmed. Uh, it's a you know, it's a 
it's a machine essentially, right? Like it's a computer program that goes and does social media in an automated way. Sometimes you do see bots in disinformation campaign, but the complicated, strategic, sophisticated ones don't really use bots anymore. Right. It doesn't mean that they're not bots on the internet, but. Um, yeah, and this maybe leads directly into so you're teaching a class, you're a professor, yes. among other things. In addition to, and by the way, thank you for loaning yourself to, the, to <laughs> on behalf of America. Thank you for oh. helping us out with our <laughs> with our election situation. Um, but you're teaching a class, and you were mentioning something about AI and maybe the next chapter of this and yeah. tracking that. Yeah, um, I'm teaching this semester at Columbia University. I have amazing students. It gives me such hope in our ability to tackle these issues. This week we did adversarial exercises and this is where the students come up with um, an adversary, a target and a campaign, like what would they wanna do? For instance, if you know they were, I don't know, uh, Iran and they wanted to target the student body of Colombia and this is something they wanted to accomplish, what type of TikTok things they would do. Like it's it's fascinating. They, they're like so smart and so creative. Um, some of that is also a bit evil genius. So I, I you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how this ends, but um, you know, we talk about what is the future of disinformation? What type of new tools are now available to people who want to do sophisticated disinformation campaigns? One of them that I particularly like is what I call read fakes. So, you know, deep fakes is mm -hmm. when you use AI video to do synthetic videos. Read fakes is when you use large language models uh, to generate text that can be disinformation text. Okay. And so when I think back about the troll farms that I've seen and people I've interviewed, you do pay a lot of money for people to just sit and write like whatever, a gardening blog so that one day you can weaponize it. If you can, you, <laughs> oh I know, it's gosh. a real story, it's a real story. The fake gardening blog that then ends up doing political propaganda, sort of like in between an article on tomatoes and in between something about like whatever. Um, and so if you can use AI to generate this, you know, large batches of believable and convincing text, it's actually very convenient. And those technologies are very accessible. I actually think that they're fun and we shouldn't fear them too much, right? Mm -hmm. Like the other thing that's a trap here is we shouldn't overreact either to the threat of disinformation or to the fact that like, yes, you know, those are technologies that we're gonna use and of course they're gonna be used in a bad way. So how do you not throw the baby with the bathwater, right? Like right. how do you give people enough literacy and familiarity with these so that they can be more savvy about it and think about potential um, malicious uses, but also potential detection uses. Right. And so thinking about how do we achieve cyber peace by just understanding this more. I mean, I don't want to exactly. put a, a quote for no, you, but exactly if your, your final message seems optimistic, which is making sure people are educated, understand the tools, think, look around corners for how this could be used in a bad way. But then I'm also hearing you say, don't panic. Don't panic. And yeah, I'm very optimistic. And again, as long as my students don't write their class papers with these, right. <laughs> with these tools, <laughs> I, I do think that, you know, the next generation is more savvy and also more used to the fact that all of this is manipulated, right? So um, I think there are a lot of people who reacted very strongly to the fact that you could use filters to distort an image. But then you talk to kids today and they're like yeah that's a snapshot where were you right right, like, right there's there's a there's again more more um familiarity with the ways we use technology to distort and manipulate with what's good what's bad and what we can do to be more aware um and and protect ourselves better from being deceived and manipulated 
I am so grateful <laughs> that you came down to Washington, explained this. I just learned a bunch of new things <laughs> and that you're working on these issues. Thank you. Kim, Thank you so for much for having on. me. This was really fun. Next week, we're taking a break for Thanksgiving. And after the holiday, we'll be back in the studio talking to reporter Emily Birnbaum about the metaverse. Be sure to follow Teched Up wherever you get your podcasts.